0: Good morning, and welcome to today's conversation about Black-owned businesses and legal and business reforms that are needed um, to better support these businesses. My name is Elizabeth Cronk-Warner, and I have the privilege and honor of being the dean at the SJ Quinney College of Law. My pronouns are she and hers, and as I like to do at the start of any time we gather and have an event, I want to start with our tribal land acknowledgement statement that we have here at the University of Utah. And we acknowledge that this land, at least I'm coming to you today from the Salt Lake Valley, uh, which is named for the Ute Tribe, is the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshu, and Ute Tribes. The University of Utah recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and their traditional homelands. We respect the sovereign relationship between tribes, states, and the federal government. And we affirm the University of Utah's commitment to a partnership with Native Nations and urban Indian communities through research, education, and community outreach activities. And so it seems really appropriate that we should be here as part of this important community outreach activity here today. So we are really excited to have um, what I'm hopeful is going to be a great and robust conversation, um, not just about reforms that are needed to better support Black-owned and minority-owned businesses um, here in Utah. And I think that's a very important conversation. Yeah but one of the common critiques of uh, Black History Month events is that we focus on Black history and Black businesses um, and uh, supporting members who are Black within our community for one month a year. We do it in February and then we never do it again. Um, So another purpose of today's panel is to not only talk about obstacles that may be impeding um, the success of Black-owned business and other owned businesses by minority populations, but also to be very thoughtful about how we can continue this work beyond this month and this week and really challenge ourselves to do better moving forward. Um, And so one of the things you're going to hear from our panelists is not just about current obstacles, but things that we as a community can do to better support these businesses. So things like working on supplier diversity. So for those of us who are at larger companies, really evaluating our suppliers to make sure that they are as diverse as they can possibly be. So for example, here at the SJ Quinney College of Law, um, we have recently adopted guidance anti-racist goals. And one of those goals is that for all of our vendors who are under $5,000, because for anything that's over $5,000 as a state institution, we have to go through a certain process. But for anything that's under $5,000, really doing a review of our vendors to make sure that we are using uh, minority owned, um, uh, veteran owned, women-owned businesses whenever possible. And so that's a commitment we've made at the S.J. Quinney College of Law. But it's not just for our corporations to make these and our businesses to make these commitments, but also for us as an uh, individual. And so one of the things I think you're going to hear our panelists talk about is this idea of making an actual firm commitment in the number of uh, percentages. So for example, 15% of your dollars could go back to Black-owned businesses and vendors uh, for you as an individual. And I think we have a slide of some resources um, and websites that you can go to to find Black-owned businesses. Um, So for example, uh, there's www.buyblack.us, www.utahblackpages.com, and www.thenialist.com, which can all help you find um, Black-owned businesses. I'm modeling uh, today an outfit uh, that I've purchased from um, companies that are totally black owned. Um, And so I personally am making that commitment myself in my personal purchases. And so I think that that is um, something that we can all do in our personal lives as well. Um, other things to think about ways that we can better support um, businesses that are owned by minority members of our community is to provide guidance and mentorship. Many of us on this call are professionals working either in the business fields or the legal fields. And so we have expertise that can be of assistance. And so I believe that um, James Jackson is going to talk about an initiative that the Utah Black Chamber is working on to provide better support. Um, this is something that we too at the SJ Quinney College of Law are actively working on. So, and I believe that Professor Peterson will mention this as well. We're working on creating a community economic development clinic, which will support um, minority owned businesses here in the urban community of Salt Lake City and the Wasatch Front, and then Indian owned economic development in rural communities um, as well. So we are actively working on that as well. Um, And I should mention that this is not all about the SJ College of Law today. We are also really excited that the David S. Eccles um, Business School is co-sponsoring today's panel Um, and we're really excited about the commitments that the business school is making as well. So with that introduction I just want to give you a brief um, overview to the format of today's panel and then I'm going to turn it over to our amazing um, list of panelists. So each of our panelists are going to talk for roughly 10 to 12 minutes um, and then after they've each given their presentations that should leave us with about 15 to 20 minutes for questions from you. Um, If you go to the bottom of your screen you will see a Q and A button at the bottom, and if you type in your question there, I will moderate um, the questions and so ask those of our panelists after they're done with their presentations. Um, We have three amazing panelists with us today. Um, So first, we have James Jackson III, um, who is the executive director of the Utah Black Chamber um, and has extensive experience uh, business experience here in Utah, and so he's going to start us off by really framing um, the situation that's happening here in Utah. Then we're going to hear from Annie Lither, who works with Zion's Bank and has a lot of experience in how to better support um, these uh, Black-owned and Indigenous-owned businesses from a business perspective. And last but not least, we have Professor Christopher Peterson, who's a professor here at the S.J. Quinney College of Law, um, also a, a gubernatorial candidate. And so he has some perspectives to offer, both from the legal perspectives and what he learned um, on the governor's trail in terms of what we can do better to support our businesses. You will note that our panelists today um, are racially diverse. This is not a panel of all Black leaders in our communities, and that's deliberately so, because supporting um, minority businesses and Black-owned businesses is not something that should rest on the backs of our Black community. This is something that we all need to invest in, and we all have an important role to play. And so we have um, a deliberately diverse panel here to talk about uh, this and to to suggest and to show that this is not just for the black community this is for all of us and that this is incredibly important and we all need to work towards this goal so with that i'm going to turn it over to james jackson the third who's going to start us off and i'm going to turn off my video and my mic but i will be back for the q a later mr jackson
1: Thank you, Dean Crock-Warner. I appreciate the invitation and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure and opportunity to speak with you um, this morning. I'm always representing uh, uh, being an alumni of the University of Utah. This is my third presentation this week within the University of Utah. So I told myself I'm going to be better engaged alumni other than just attending football games. And so I definitely feel I made that commitment this week. When I first founded the Utah Black Chamber in 2009, the Black population was at a 0.8 population, um, was where we were sitting. And I felt at the time the Black Chamber would maybe grow to maybe about 100 members. Um, there was a need, even though the, the community is small, Um, I felt that there was still a need, mainly because of the the lack of resources, lack of visibility, lack of education for these businesses, because they're all part of the community but weren't being represented as well as all the other businesses. And as we continue to grow and expand and develop the relationships and the resources, here today, we've now grown to over 250 members and approaching 500 members by the end of this year as we expand throughout the whole entire Utah footprint instead of just in Salt Lake City. Um, We reached to our, uh, we, we opened a Utah County chapter in November of 2019. We're opening a Northern Utah chapter within the last couple of months here and kicking it off this year, introducing a new incubator space up in Northern Utah, which will be actually a pilot space to grow a larger one here in Salt Lake that we plan to open in 2022. And the focus of that is to bridge that gap Um, because we know when we, in order to remove the systemic barriers, we must first build that bridge over those barriers, create that opportunity. And through that, we'll be able to start eliminating that that, that fence, that barrier uh, where we can all have an equitable playing field. And so with that being said, I just kind of wanted to share um, three opportunities for us to support Black-owned businesses, not only during Black History Month, but just throughout the rest of the year. First, as Dean Crock warner said, is, you know, be a consumer for the Black-owned, you know, for Black-owned businesses. Black-owned businesses are not just for the Black community. We're more than just barber shops and restaurants. We have so many other businesses out there and we have just as a diversified economy within the black community as utah itself and so one way you can discover black-owned businesses is by going to utahblackpages.com and explore that website it's full of black businesses and black organizations that have uh, businesses all throughout the state there was a from a brewery in um, cedar city utah to um, you know, a, a wellness institution up in northern Utah. So you can explore all the different types of businesses there and, and you know, find their products and services um, that suit your needs. The second thing I would encourage everybody to do is to um, as I mentioned, there was, we, we have a lack of education and resources. And so over this last several months, many people are reaching out to the Black Chamber. Hey, how can I help the Black community? How can I support the Black community? And I admit it was a little overwhelming, but you know, it was a good problem to have knowing that there are so many people that want to support the Black community. And oh yeah, thank you. So there, there was this overwhelming support of, you know, how can I assist you know, Black businesses? You know, where can I find to go be a consumer? And I would say, you know, not only be a consumer, but if you're a corporation, I would say like a large corporation, I would say, you know, find these black businesses, and increase your supplier diversity, as Dean Quark Warner mentioned. You know, there are so many businesses that can offer these products and services that you're using right now. Um, Bring them on board as a vendor, you know, um, elevate the competition, build some innovation um, and possibly even lower your spend by identifying and growing with diverse businesses throughout the state of Utah. And also offer some support or mentorship. Well, there's a lot of needs within the black businesses because a, a nationwide black businesses have 10 or less employees. And when you're in the state of Utah, it's half of that, whereas five or less employees. When the PPP loans rolled out, the you know, a lot of them applied, um, you know, during the second round because, you know, we, there was a lot of mix up during the first round. It wasn't really a conducive environment for for um, the black community to obtain those loans. There was a lot of hoops that they had to discover, to juggle through. And that's main, mainly the reason why they they... They're operating with one, two, three, five employees. Where, you know, there's that one owner who is the accountant, who is the marketer, who is the salesperson, who is the janitor, who is the custodian, who's doing all these things. And to understand what paperwork is necessary, to understand how to build the relationship with the banks in order to apply for those PPP loans, it was quite the, it was quite the, the, the challenge for them. And so, what I would submit is, if you have experience if you have a resource that you can come in and provide to them use the blackpages.com website to go in and say hey do you you know i would love to offer some assistance as far as quickbooks or help with some accounting you know i see that you need help with some with some marketing um, you know they're always looking for that kind of a guidance and assistance to help elevate them because as we elevate those businesses and they get on more firm, stable ground. Mind you, during this pandemic, black-owned businesses were closing at two to three times the rate as white-owned businesses. So it's, it's important that to support our overall economy that we look towards and pay be a more intentional focus to the black-owned businesses, to the diverse businesses, create a more stable platform because once you raise them up, we impact the overall local economy. Diversity adds dividends. Because once we help elevate them, they're able to add more jobs back into the economy. They're able to add more money being spent into our local economy. And then we help close the racial wealth gap. So when we want to go in and support those businesses, offer your wisdom, your experience, your consulting help, your background to support those businesses. And then finally, what I would ask is to burst that bubble. Expand your influence in order to continue your support of the Black-owned businesses throughout the rest of the year instead of just Black History Month, right? Usually when there's a a certain focus on a particular community during a given month, where it's Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month or um, Indigenous Peoples Month, you know, we, we, we have that intense focus. And then when that focus dies or goes away, then, you know, it goes away from our mind as well. So this is why it's important to expand your influence, build relationships, learn to connect with people outside of your own network. When you learn to connect with other people outside your own community and gain those relationships, you're more apt to go continue to support them. Um, and then you're able to identify where their needs are. You can be a support team for them. So if you're not that particular person, you can provide accounting or you can provide marketing or could provide any type of web development experience. You may know someone, you know, use that LinkedIn type framework where the second or third degree connection that you can introduce them to and help them, you know, navigate and, and, and uh, put them on a more stable platform. And like I said, when we do that, we're able to elevate our whole, whole economy. Utah is, performing better than all the other uh, states out there and it's important we we always I feel like we're in we're very competitive state right we always want to be that number one and to continue to be number one it's important than ever that we support diversity especially in these during during these challenging times so those, those are three things I encourage you to do not only be a consumer but offer support, support diversity, mentorship, and, and guidance, and then expand your influence in order to build the black business community. So with that, I'll turn it time over to Annie. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, James. Hi everyone, it's so great to be here today. My name is Annie and uh, my pronouns are she and hers. I graduated from the University of Utah with a bachelor's in marketing in 2011. So it's so great to be here with you all today. Um, And thank you to Dean Cronk Warner and the School of Law for the invitation. Uh, As a Southeast Asian woman of color, I hope to share my perspective on how to grow as an ally to our black community, our black owned businesses, and really how to take action against anti-black racism as an individual, as a business, and really given my professional background a little bit as a marketer. Uh, over the past year, I feel like there's been a lot of conversation about anti-racism and most of that has been stemming from the murder of George Floyd. And you know, oppression really impacts all communities of color. And it's important that we support each other. So as an ally and a woman of color myself, my allyship advocates for combating the the many racial justice issues our society is facing. And that includes anti-Asian racism, anti-Black racism, xenophobia, and so much more. I think it's important to remember that as members of communities of color, we can engage in allyship with other communities without taking anything away from our own unique challenges and experiences. So for me, that means learning about and advocating for other communities of color. And that includes this topic of supporting black owned businesses that we're discussing here today. When we talk about equitable outcomes, we can't achieve those without including the black community's experiences. That being said, I think this topic is such a great reminder, as Dean cronk said, the allyship is a continuous journey that that never really ends. And it's absolutely one that goes on year round. Um, It's not just one month of the year. So when we all walk away from today's discussion, I hope that we can carry these takeaways with us into the future Um, and that allyship doesn't really end when Black History Month ends. Over the past year, Edelman has put out several really great reports on how everything going on in our world from the pandemic to the racial justice movement, um, how it all impacts brands and organizations. They released an updated Racial Justice in America report last fall, and there's a couple of insights I would like to share with you all today. One. Anti-racism is a long-term expectation for business and that impacts everything from hiring, retention, development and promotion, community partnerships, supply chain oversight and vendor relationships. And they all must have full racial representation. Two, CEOs must partner with trusted peers, subject matter experts, activists and advocacy groups to gain credibility. And three, from a marketing standpoint, it's important to take a critical approach to campaigns, partnerships, and overall strategy. And and I would add, you know, if you're not thoughtful, marketing can quickly become very performative and tokenistic. So it, it does require some thought. And their most recent report, uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer 2021, also has some interesting tidbits I thought I'd share with you. Their study showed that business is not only the most trusted institution among the four studied, but it is also the only trusted institution with a 61% trust level globally. And that's compared to NGOs, government, and media. And in that same survey, 86% expect CEOs to publicly speak out on societal and local community issues. And finally, the likelihood of trust increases by roughly 4.7% when businesses are driving economic prosperity for everyone. So we all know there's there's so many elements to, to creating a business, and I think it's important as allies, we take the time to understand some of the barriers Black business owners are facing, whether they be institutional, from a you know, market based, or even sociocultural. Um, so some of those may be you know, limited access to capital, and you know, the things that James was talking about, the, the mentorship that Black entrepreneurs um, need as they are building their businesses. Um, and then also exclusion from developing those critical partnerships. And, you know, whether that's from product development, marketing, finance, financial support, um, and again, that mentorship or sponsorship. So as from the ally perspective, what I'd like to leave you with today are a couple of ideas you know, that I offer to you all as we challenge ourselves to become better allies uh, to Black-owned businesses. And, and the first is that has already been mentioned is buying from Black-owned businesses. As James mentioned, as Dean Cronk-Warner has mentioned, your organization's procurement and supplier practices should include Black-owned businesses. And I think it's important to look at the whole picture um, and think of how that impact really makes, um, you know, making a commitment to buy from Black-owned businesses truly has. I I recently read about the 15% pledge that that Dean Cronk-Warner mentioned at the beginning, um, and that is actually a campaign that seeks equal representation in major retail and companies and asks them to committing to spend 15% of their dollars with black owned businesses. And there's actually two elements to this um, as we've already been talking about today. So not only encouraging brands to purchase 15% of their inventory from black entrepreneurs but it's also asking consumers to direct 15% of their own spending to black owned businesses just as Dean Cronkwater uh, demonstrated um, to us this morning. And so that way it really comes around full circle. And in addition to the directory that James in the Utah Black Chamber has created, another resource that was shared this morning is one that a friend of mine shared with me, um, which is called the Nile List. Um, and I, I think it'll be shared again later. But the uh, Nile List is another directory, and all the businesses listed on there are shoppable online. So the amazing thing is, you can actually support Black owned businesses all over the country no matter where you are, which may be helpful for any alumni or folks that we have outside of Utah today. Um, I also love that it identifies which shops are owned by Black women. So it may it may require you to do some research to find Black owned businesses. I went out and did my own research as obviously some folks on this other on this panel today have as well. Um, you know, directories like the Utah Black Chambers and the Nihilist are great resources to refer to, but it's also okay um, to do a little research on your own. You know, being an ally takes some work um, and that's gonna include some time and energy. And so it's, it's okay to go out. I think we need to get comfortable that when we're looking for a new product or something in our lives, um, that, that we're challenging ourselves to maybe do a little research and, and consider other alternatives. Last summer, we saw a lot of brands um, reacting to the racial justice movement on social media. So I'm gonna put my, my marketer hat on here for a second. And often those brands you know, came with statements vowing to do better and to listen. And so many of them were quick to post on Instagram a photo with people of color, even if all of their other photos or previous posts were lacking diverse representation. So after the noise of the protest faded away, many, for many of those brands, that action that should have come, you know, afterwards, never, never came. There was no discussion on how to surround themselves with diverse stories and how to learn from them. So that brings me to my next point, which is amplifying black voices. Um, so I just would encourage you all to, to share your spotlight and your platform, whatever it is that you have yourself as, as an individual or as, or as an organization, um, with black business owners, um, if you're hosting an event or a panel discussion, invite Black business owners to participate. Provide that opportunity for diverse voices and stories to be heard. And um, you know, I love the approach that has been taken to uh, construct this panel here today. Um, Also refer your your businesses um, or these businesses to clients, customers, and partners. Feature or partner with them on social media. Um, Last summer I saw a lot of brands and even some individuals with some pretty powerful platforms turn their social media accounts over to black women activists and entrepreneurs. Uh, But this isn't something we should be doing only when that momentum supports That We need to be committing to doing it year round. We also need to be mindful that we are including both Black men and women. Uh, there are some amazing, just really phenomenal Black women here in Utah and in your local communities that can speak to their own stories, experiences, and are running some really amazing businesses. So recognizing that intersectionality of identity is crucial. So include Black women in your, in your um, opportunities to, in allyship. And then finally, mentorship, sponsorship, and advocacy. Uh, you know, I. I think we all understand the power of of a really great mentor and sponsor. So if you have an opportunity to mentor, sponsor, advocate for a black business owner, provide these entrepreneurs with the same opportunities and advice and support you would provide to non-black learners. Um, And this includes, I think, the younger generation of students as well. We we have an amazing uh, generation of talent that's coming up. And so I think it's important that we are including them in that mentorship. Um, you know, we, we need to be opening these doors and speaking up and matching talented owners and entrepreneurs with opportunities that may be limited or closed off due to the barriers that we're, we're discussing here today. Um, so with that, I wanna keep my thoughts somewhat brief. Um, so with that, I will turn the time over to Chris.
3: <laughs> well, hey, everybody. Um, uh, thank you so much uh, uh, to Annie and to James. And also thank you for the invitation to Dean Cronk Warner. It's such an honor for me uh, to get to speak at a Black History Black, Black History Month event. It's the first time I've ever been invited to speak at something like that. I also, before I start too, want to thank our events staff and our IT staff who helped uh, put on these continuing legal education programs because I think they're a real service to the legal community and to attorneys out there who are trying to get their CLE credits done. Um, so I wanted to focus my comments Start on some historical uh, points. And they are all in service to a broader point I want to make, which is that supporting Black owned businesses, in my view, means building wealth in Black communities. Because uh, it's, you know, running a business, starting a business is incredibly difficult. Most businesses fail from whatever background you're from, but it's especially difficult if you don't have the resources to weather hard times and don't have access to capital to borrow money in order to get that business up and running or bridge uh, downturns in the market. So I, I wanna look back in time and talk a little bit about uh, uh, credit in the history of America with respect to black people. So obviously the great sin of America is it was slavery, but after the civil war and emancipation uh, in the in the South, the American landed gentry turned to using the sharecropper system as a substitute for slavery. Uh, and what that meant was that uh, black farmers uh, farmed over the course of a season only expecting to get a small Portion of uh, only to share in in the total amount of, um, of value that was produced on the farm, but they would borrow each season, attempting to pay back those debts uh, with the produce of the of the farm each season. But the interest rates were extremely high, um, uh, oftentimes fifty to ninety, even over a hundred percent for a commercial a business loan, um, and, uh, and and that's what led uh, W. E. B. Du Bois in his Souls of Black Folk book, uh, you know, landmark book. At the big at the end of the 19th century, um, to say that uh, slavery was replaced with slavery of debt. Um, that, that continued on, and the great migration is uh, many black folks moved into great cities in the Northeast and in the Midwest, uh, and also eventually to California with salary lenders, which were the first loan sharks in American history. Their typical deal was to loan you uh, $5 uh, today and expect to be paid $6 back in about a week or two when, when you got paid. Uh, they were the precursors to today's payday loan companies. The interest rate on that loan that I just described is an average interest rate of about, about 600%. Um, uh, and these were extremely oppressive loans, but there uh, they were creative legal strategies uh, that the lenders adopted to try to circumvent interest rate caps that were enforced at the time. Um, those were obviously made to white folks as well, but uh, they were particularly oppressive and, and hard on uh, uh, people of color who were struggling to make ends meet in, in uh, industrializing cities. And in the Great Depression, uh, it, the Great Depression wiped out farmers all across the country. But the remaining black farmers in the South were particularly hard hit, with their farms being repossessed, forcing them to move west, and, and again hastening the the Great Migration to our cities. And then and then in the, in the after the Great Depression, and the New Deal. FDR adopted some serious structural reforms to our banking system that paved the way for building the American middle class in the American century and among the most of them was the most important of all of them was the 30-year fixed interest rate mortgage which did not exist in the history of the human species until uh, the uh, the the New Deal and the basic structure of this deal was uh, when you get to be about 25 30 35 and you've gained some wealth and you have a decent job you can borrow money for 30 30 years to buy a home. And over the course of that, that your life, by the time you're 60, 65 and about ready to retire, you've built a piece of a You've, You've earned the right to own a piece of America, and then pass it on to your kids. Uh, And that's more than anything else, in my view, in American history. That that loan is what built the American middle class, but it had built-in structural racism associated with it. The Federal Housing Administration and many of the other underwriting guidelines would literally draw red lines around uh, neighborhoods of color and uh, and designated those as too high risk for the government to provide insurance for those programs, which meant that. Uh, uh, African-American folks were stuck in what became ghettos because they couldn't uh, get the government-backed credit that facilitated migration to the, the suburbs in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Well, in the in the civil rights era, uh, uh, there was a, an attack on overt racist uh, policies of the Jim Crow era. And in 1974, that led to also the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which outlawed discrimination against protected classes in providing credit and other financial services in America, both for uh, on, the, on the basis of racial discrimination, but also uh, marital status, gender, and even age. Um, and that was a, a very important step in American history, but it is about the the same time that uh, we transitioned from a, a credit system that had pretty good products out there but restricted access only for favored folks to, uh, uh, well, we're going to let uh, everybody get access to credit, but we also deregulated most of the, the most important consumer protections so that many of the new products that emerged on the market were very abusive, high-cost products, things like payday loans, which were similar to those old salary loans from the, the earlier part of the 20th century, and also uh, more. More exotic and increasingly um, uh, dangerous mortgage loan products, which led us up to uh, the boom years in the 1990s and into the Great Recession, where many African Americans managed to purchase homes but did so with um, pay option, high arm, and teaser interest rates, and subprime mortgages that were wiped out in 2008 uh, and causing a massive reduction in the overall wealth of Black Americans. And That, in turn, led to uh, a period in uh, following the Great Recession where many Americans, especially people of color, sheltered from high unemployment rates by going to school and taking on uh, un- unprecedented levels of student loan debt. Now, some of that student loan debt was positive and allowed people to get credentials, but too many African-American folks and other people of color were uh, became victims of what I believe are predatory for-profit schools that don't provide a credential that it provide, gets... Gives prestigious access to um, uh, good jobs, and also uh, I, I don't actually provide the high quality training to give you the skills that you need to compete in the workforce. Um, so, uh, disproportionately, that student loan debt that's it, it there's a legacy of that that's being um, uh, many uh, uh, millennials and, and Generation Z folks are still struggling to repay right now uh, and, and is creating, a, is hobbling the efforts of, of Black Americans to, to build wealth and start businesses. And I'll also say that now we're in a a period of our history where um, there's real recognition that just anti-discriminate, just just laws restricting discrimination are not enough. What we need are affirmative rules that facilitate building wealth in low-income and especially minority communities. And I do think that there are some positive uh, uh, signs out there on the horizon, but I don't see quite as many of them here in the state of Utah. I did a study uh, a year ago with a co-author where we uh, looked at how payday loans are being collected in in our small claims court system. And what we found was that uh, high cost triple digit interest rate loans are leading to thousands of bench warrants for the arrest of low income borrowers. And I believe, although we don't have the data to prove it, but I believe that those borrowers are disproportionately. Unfortunately black and brown. Uh, and so the leading cause of, of, of civil arrest warrants in our in our state right now is uh, predatory loans. Uh, And I believe that that's actually making it more difficult for uh, our uh, black and brown families to find the stability that they need to create businesses and have a firm foundation to build wealth and move forward in a productive way. I do think that there are some more positive signs on the horizon, though, and I'll transition away from history to a little bit about some reforms that I see. Um, When I worked in the Obama administration for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, one of the great regrets that I had is that we did not manage to get done a rulemaking under the the Equal Credit Opportunity Act that I mentioned. mentioned uh, The Dodd-Frank Act that created the CFPB gave the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau the authority to gather new data uh, to enforce the Equal Credit Opportunity Act on Small business loans. Uh, for the first time, this in, in the history of the country, the federal government has the authority to require financial institutions to keep track of whether or not they're making loans uh, to people within protected classes, and gather that information in a central source to uh, to make a more data informed decisions about how we can guide our our federal financial policy. Um, there is now a proposal on the table uh, back east to do that for the first time, and I think that in the Biden administration, the federal government needs to finalize that and make sure that it's a strong uh, rule. And I think here in, the, in Utah, where we have many financial institutions, we need to be supportive of that Equal Credit Opportunity Act uh, information gathering process to make sure that we're not complaining and we're providing that data to the federal government to make sure that we can guide our policies in an effective way. Second thing that I'm excited about right now is actually a state law and it's not here in Utah, it's in Illinois. In Illinois, the Illinois legislature led by um, uh, a group of racial justice advocates, primarily African-American folks, passed a new interest rate cap, a usury law that's based on the Military Lending Act, which is a federal statute that caps interest rates at 36%. I believe that's a very positive step that ironically, although it's a primarily a consumer protection statute, I think will be very helpful in trying to weed out some of the most abusive products that are preventing black and brown communities from gaining the wealth and stability to have a firm foundation to grow their um, their, their small businesses and entrepreneurship. Well, and I think that uh, that leads me, I need to wind up, um, uh, uh, but that leads me to, to, to some an observation about here in Utah. You know, I, When I say that, I know that it, folks in the banking community see that as a very far-fetched and, and aggressive law. They shudder about it a little bit. But I actually don't believe that Utahns uh, uh, see it that way. Um, right now, there is supermajority support, not just amongst Democrats, but also Republicans here in the state of Utah to reenact a traditional interest rate cap to protect low-income communities from predatory lending. Uh, And I believe that's one thing that Utah needs to take affirmative steps on. Uh, We should be supporting consumer protections to try to facilitate building wealth in low-income communities so we can have firm foundations for our uh, minority-owned businesses to actually succeed and grow. And it's not just me that believes that, you know, in closing um, uh, in his famous speech uh, about uh, uh, his his famous, I have a dream speech, Martin Luther King talked about uh, uh, a promised land. He had an analogy of of Zion, uh, something that I think resonates for many Utahns of all, uh, uh, from all different uh, ethnic origins. Uh, And in the conclusion to that speech, he talked about how once we achieve a greater uh, level of racial justice, There'll be freedom, free at last, free at last, God almighty, free at last. Well, in my, uh, in a very humble and small way, uh, uh, I think that an important coda to that, or or corollary to that notion of freedom, is that we need uh, our black and brown brothers and sisters to have debt freedom at last, because uh, you know, living a life it within within the. The, 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 the bond you know, within the bonds of debt servitude is not the way to be uh, for us to have the home of the brave and the land of the free. We need to have people who have access to wealth and a foundation to grow their businesses and and uh, uh, have, have a good quality of life for themselves and their children. So I think that we need consumer financial protection uh, in order to support our black owned businesses. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for those excellent presentations. Um, I know I certainly learned a lot uh, and was really appreciative of of every all the information you shared. Um, So now we have uh, roughly 20 minutes for questions which is great. Um, Again for those of you uh, who are attending you can you should see at the bottom of your screen a button that says Q&A. And so if you want to go ahead and type your questions for the panelists into that uh, Q&A function, I will be happy to be the moderator today. I know I, I don't see a question yet, so I'll start us off with a question that I, uh, I know we usually get and is always a, a topic of, of conversation, which is how can people who are not members of the Black community be better allies? Um, so what specific things um, can, in, can people do in their individual capacities? And then if they're part of organizations, um, what can they do within their organizations?
2: I'm, I'm happy to go first um you know I, I think as i mentioned earlier i think being an ally is is this journey that we're on we're, we're we're never going to fully arrive at allyship um we we can continue to practice it but i think it's important to remember that um if we get to a point where we we can say that, that's it i've done. i'm there i'm done um there there's something wrong and so uh, you know uh, you know as Dean Corner, as you've mentioned earlier, I think it's really important that we take that ownership on, upon ourselves to, to educate ourselves, to learn, to, to study what it is that we can be doing better ourselves. And we don't put that burden on the black community to teach us ourselves. There are so many great resources out there um, from, from a racial justice standpoint um, to, to really further that education. And it goes beyond books and movies and podcasts, there's some really great, um, just resources to, to understand how you can do it every day on your own personal life within the business setting. I would say, especially within the business setting, um, if you have a woman of color, if you have a black woman on your team, look out for her, you know, look out for opportunities where, where maybe she's being silenced or or diminished or, or, being given, you know, tasks that um, are, are frankly not at, um, within her job description. Um, I think we often see a lot of women of color or, or black women being assigned really just these menial administrative tasks that, that have nothing to do with the scope of their, their job. And I, I you wouldn't see that happening to, to men. So I, I think it's really important that, you know, if you have women of color, black women on your team, really keep an eye out for them, stand up for them, advocate for them. If you see them being spoken over in a meeting saying, you know, I, I think, you know, so-and-so is making a point right now. Um, I think she had something to say, or that's interesting. I think, you know, she already said something like this. Can we go back to this? So, um, there, there's a lot of ways, but, um, I, I think it's important that you take that that responsibility on yourself.
3: Well, uh, I guess maybe I should chime in too. Um, uh, you know, Annie's point is a great point about interpersonal relationships and teamwork. I totally agree with all of that. Um, if I had something to add that that, you know, if I had an insight, I suppose it's not a sort of a retail kind of interpersonal point, but a, a structural economic point about about you know, how how our businesses are interacting with our society. And it's just extending the theme that I, I had in my talk, which is that, look, we, we you know, and it's especially important for this state and also, frankly, for lawyers in this state, because Utah has become a, a, a hub of information technology. We're not Silicon Valley, but we're coming up right behind it. And some of our best, uh, you know, our, our brightest companies that are surging ahead are financial businesses that are using, the information technology here in the Silicon Slopes to export financial products all across the country. What we need to do in Utah in order to support African-American folks and other low and moderate income people is not use our technology and legal resources to make predatory loans to them. Uh, That's how I think we should be good allies.
1: Yeah, thanks Annie and and Chris for that. Um, i shared just a quick example. Um, because what I shared earlier today, you know, the third point I made about, you know, expanding your influence, right? In order to fully understand um, the challenges of the Black community, you, you, you got to build relationships. That's really what it comes down to. And your relationships will extend beyond just, you know, buying from a Black business every now and then, but really learning and gaining from them. I have family members um, that are part of the LGBTQ um, community. And instead of always just looking to them for advice, like Annie was saying, don't lean on them to give you how to engage with the LGBT community, I I intentionally expanded my network. You know, I connected with the LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce and Equality Utah and other different organizations and other people and really gained a better understanding. And from that, I was able to support my family members so much better. That right. member reached out and said, you know, I'd like to, I would like from now on to have the pronoun they. And it's grammatically challenging if it was for me to, to um, integrate that into how I how I contacted Tori. Um, you know, because I was like, well, I just gotta start calling your name because I'm gonna mess that up for a little while. But she recognized that it was okay, right? Because we have that connection, we have that relationship. So a lot of times people will struggle, say, well, I don't wanna say the wrong thing. So when you're actually connected with somebody, you have that relationship, they'll know that your intent is great. And it's OK to fumble all over the words, knowing that your intent is well. And they're going to be there to correct your wrong, to give you an understanding, to give you some grace. That way, when you go out into the community, um, you know, you're not always putting your foot in your mouth. Right. You have someone that has your back. that gives you that full understanding because you have developed those relationships. And that's why it's important to expand your network.
0: I love that. I, I have this vision of, you know, this person who helps you not put your foot in your mouth. Um, and I think that's so true. I, I cannot speak for the black community, but as a, a member of the native community, I regularly have people who come up to me and say, oh, I, you know, I want to help tribes. How do I get involved? I reached out and I never heard back. And and part of it is that relationship building. You know, there's been such a history and that's why I appreciated Professor Peterson's um, historical analysis. There's been such a history of oppression and um, uh, marginalized communities being taken advantage of that, at least speaking for the Indian country, um, there's a lot of distrust there. And so people might come to Indian country with the best of intentions and really want to help. But if they don't have a relationship with you and if they don't know you, just based on that history, um, it's going to be difficult to work with the communities. And so I just wanted to echo um, what Mr. Jackson said is so incredibly important, taking that time to, um, to really be invested and, and get to know the community and form those relationships can can really be helpful. Um, so we have a question from Lynn who says, in terms of offering professional advice to black owned businesses, such as small business consulting, accounting, legal, et cetera, is there an entity such as uh, the black business chamber or other small business consulting organization that a person could connect with black owned businesses in need?
1: Yeah, great question. You know, the black chamber, we like to be that premier hub you know, when I first started, <clears throat> excuse me, the Black Chamber, um, and you, and and then you spoke earlier about that distrust, right? And so all the black businesses came to the chamber for help. Uh, well, we're limited in our capacity. We we don't we don't have paid staff, right? We're still operating on the, with a volunteer army. And what we've done is we connected with several business resources out there, like the Small Business Development Center, you know, Utah Market Loan Fund, the Women's Business Center, um, the Salt Lake Chamber, and all these other resources. We develop very um, great relationships with all of them, and they engage with us in a Small Business Development Committee. And so all of those resources you can connect with because they're directly connected to the Black Chamber, and you can also come to the Black Chamber. We actually are in the process of launching a website called... uh, a page on our website called the Entrepreneur Support Center, where black businesses can go online, fill out a form and say, I need help here. And our goal is to connect them with a specific resource to serve in that particular need. And so we have that built out. Um, And Annie spoke about black women-owned businesses. We engaged with a few other organizations and put out a a platform called New Pattern, which is a grant and mentorship program for black women founders. So you can go to newpattern.org and learn more about that. Um, as we're looking for support and mentorship for Black women founders. Our first application process was 75 applicants of Black women founders here in Utah. And we awarded up um, four of them up to 10 grand and providing some mentorship and guidance for them. But given all 75 of those business owners mentorship and support, using them, you know, calling like a new pattern community to just kind of wrap our arms around them and give them any type of support. So yes, you can reach out to the Black Chamber most definitely, you can go to our website, you can email me or the Black Chamber email um, as well, and we'd be more than happy to direct you at any way necessary to provide that support.
0: Great, thank you. Um, So next, we have a question to all three panelists. What are some promising models for partnerships at all levels in the mentoring we all agree is crucial for bridging the gaps? And what are some concrete carrots you believe work to bring stakeholders to the table to be interested in real sharing of power for learning and ultimately fortifying the economic and community strengths of the Black community to be serious partners that everyone wants to partner with beyond the Black uh, History Month in a sustainable and growing way?
3: Well, maybe I'll I'll jump in on this one. Although I hesitate, I worry about it a little bit because it's not something that's within my core area of academic expertise. But um, you know, there, there's a there's a, an old law that's designed to try to deal with um, exclusion of some communities from access to banking products. It's called the um, the Community Reinvestment Act. And this law it's uh, it, it's about the same. It passed about the same time as the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And the idea was that because banks were excluding. Especially African American folks, but also Latinos and and uh, you know Indigenous folks, were uh, from access to credit, you know primarily good products. Uh, for banks that were underserving some communities, they had to talk about, they had to make some effort to direct their their lending to inclusion. Uh, that was a positive development, but then. You know, in the, in the great, before the Great Recession, the way that some banks were and some financial institutions and also non banks were living up to that obligation was by extending products that really weren't very suitable and weren't affordable for many low income communities. Um, but I wonder whether or not in the future there isn't some way that we can redirect the Community Reinvestment Act to provide um, a, a business business um uh, centers so I know that Zion's bank has something like this where you have a small business support center of some sort I mean I've walked past it um, I, I would love to see something like that that where where in living up to community reinvestment obligation act obligations there is subsidized your know, banking industry subsidized uh, high quality professional mentoring and counseling with Accounting services, legal services, uh, on a broad basis for minority-owned uh, businesses across the the, the uh, state. I, I think that'd be a wonderful project. Well, now there's something that's really like that. I know that the 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 you know James has already talked about some of the work that the Chamber of Commerce is doing, which I think is great. Um, it would be wonderful if we could put real you know, big financial dollars and turbocharge that with 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 banks living up to their Community Reinvestment Act obligations. Um, it, look, it's just an idea. I don't know whether or not this something like that already exists, and uh, I hesitate to say it because I don't like talking about things that I haven't thought through very carefully, but um, it's thought.
1: Well, I like your vision, Chris, um, because, you know, alluding to the Black Success Center that we're we're looking to build through the Black Chamber and working with many partners like Goldman Sachs and, of course, you know, within my home, Zions Bank Corporation, and seeing what we can do to put that in to, to really Build those partnerships. Um, sometimes, you know, Sia, you should be on this panel. I think he he doesn't he doesn't give himself enough credit. Um, it's good to hear from him. But uh, thanks,
3: James. a lot, man. <laughs> Thank you.
1: But uh, you know, Sia is a you know a great person as well, and who asked this question. You know, a, a young cat coming from from Africa, who's a rising emerging leader here. And I think, if anything, he should be also participating in a lot of these panels as well. And so he asked such a question that I had to pause for me and read through it several times. So, Chris, I thank you for taking a, a stab at it. Um, but I think partnerships is the most powerful way, right? A partnership within the Black community um, with the resources that are provided. And really this starts with conversation. You know, how do banks have the conversation with business, um, Black business organizations you know how do uh, you know, how the tech community have these conversations? We're, and we're having them right now within the STEM community, we're having these conversations, within the banking community, we're having these conversations. So I do see some light at the end of the tunnel. And I think, Chris, you're right on with your vision. I think it will be coming to light here soon. Um, there, I feel there is progress coming. But I think it really starts this having and be willing to have these conversations. And also, you know, it's a theme that I've used since June. You know, we, we have to listen to understand rather than listen to respond, right? And that's what we've been doing over the last several months. And it's really causing this division is that we're just spitting out from our hip, our perspective and how things should be instead of really... Developing and listening and form, and forming an understanding of what, um, these different communities are, are going through and how we can better support them. And then when we can meet them on this bridge called Common Ground and identify, um, some solutions from there. And so this, this goes back to really starting the conversation and then really forming that vision that, that Chris just shared.
2: Um, oh my gosh, this, uh, James, to your point from Sia, this was a, an amazing question. I also had to read it a few times to make sure I was understanding this, um, but wow. Um, you know, I, I will just add to what has already been said from a partnership standpoint, I think to truly develop a partnership, as James said, one, you need to come into it with a, with an intention to listen, to understand, and not to respond. And then as that relationship grows, pay black folks for the work that they are doing. I think it's as simple as that as in terms of a concrete carrot, um, in order to help develop, um, you know, their own economic prosperity, pay them and pay them what they are worth not not what it is that you think that they are worth but actually what they are worth um, if they come to you with pricing it, it's not a matter of negotiation um, i think that you know we can all learn from that as, as individuals and as organizations as, as brands as companies uh, if you are going to take the time to create these strategic partnerships whether it's from a supplier standpoint from a marketing standpoint from a consulting standpoint we need to be paying folks what they are worth, um, and I'm just going to leave it at that.
0: Yes, people deserve to get paid, absolutely. Um, So this last question I think that we have time for uh, goes to Professor Peterson uh, from Vince says, in reference to Professor Peterson's comment on historical racial discrimination in lending practices, how do you reconcile the banking industry's argument of lost profits from interest rates cap with the fact that these higher rates serve as a modern form of discrimination and make it more difficult for black entrepreneurs to start a business? What would be a policy reform solution to bridge this gap? assuming that the data is allowed to be gathered from the states to prove this
3: disparity. Well, it's a good question. I mean the on the one hand, if you um, have if you w- what we've been trying to find for the past hundred years or so is is, is the right the right division between, having access to credit because for a long time, uh, uh, African-American businesses and, and, and families have been excluded from access to high quality, good value credit products, which are you know, absolutely essential, important for building businesses and also uh, you know, getting access to you know, building, buying a home, uh, 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 getting a car, uh, getting an education. Getting access to good products, but also at the same time, if you're going to give them access to good products, not letting in a bunch of kind of scammy, high cost, predatory, exotic products that don't build wealth and are actually counterproductive. What we need is a balance of both access, but access to good, high quality products. And I think that that means a blend of a bunch of different strategies. It doesn't. There's no silver bullet for this. What we need are things that push, you know, access, but also at the same time restrict access to bad products. So taking off some of the worst products off the market, and also building um, investment and and doing the hard work of high quality underwriting and getting good products out there in the marketplace. So the, I mean, the, the proposal that 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 seems to me like it is the lowest common denominator, easiest proposal that we should be able to agree upon and in fact have broad support for even in a a really, you know, Republican conservative state like Utah is an interest rate cap, a supermajority support of Republicans in Utah for the same law that they just passed, uh, that that Black racial justice advocates just passed in Illinois. Um, I mean, that really tells you something, doesn't it? That Mormon Republican Utahns agree with the, the Black Lives Matter racial justice advocates in the Illinois legislature that just imposed an interest rate cap based on what the Department of Defense already figured out. Um, I, I feel like that is ought to be the first, the first kind of step that we should be able to agree upon. Um, but then you know, there's a lot of other things too. We just talked about the one with uh, uh, James about trying to find new ways to channel um, high quality uh, uh, you know, uh, services and products into, into about black communities. Um, so
1: I'll stop there. I know we're running out of time, and I don't want to go on too long. Great. If well, I what, can just chime in real quick on that, uh, Dean yeah. but alluding to what Chris said, which I think is you know a great um, uh, a great opportunity there. But understanding through the what Chris mentioned in his presentation earlier about all all those challenges that were experienced in getting access to credit has created a distrust within the from Black community to the banking community. So trust has to be gained first, and we saw the the institutional barriers that existed, you know, getting access to the PPP loans. So first, this is you know going back to that relationships, developing those relationships first, and so that the black community can have that trust um, with them. You know, for example, Zions Bank has done a great job of becoming a member of all the ethnic chambers throughout the valley, you know, and and been a you know intentional effort in reaching out to the diverse community, right, to try and establish that trust, understanding. Each community and how they and how they interact with them, because they all have different kinds of needs. So first, before we're getting to that first step that Chris talked about, you know, first start building that trust, start building the relationships, and start gaining an understanding and the different needs that each community um, has.
0: I think that's a a great note to end on, the importance of relationship building to do this work moving forward. Um, So please join me in thanking our amazing panelists. Um, I know I learned a lot from this conversation. It was tremendous. Thank you for taking your time. I want to remind everyone of those three websites that we said earlier so we can keep this going, not just in February, but throughout the year. So again, that's www.byblack.us www.utahblackpagesalloneword.com all one word .com, and ww all one word. That's Nile as in the Nile River. Um, And those are great ways to find Black businesses to support. I also want to echo um, Professor Chris uh, Chris Peterson's uh, thank you to our amazing IT and events team. They're with us here today. You can't see them because they're dark, um, but we really appreciate all the fantastic work they do and everything they did to pull today's panel together. Um, If you want to go back to this video as a resource in the future, either um, to remind yourself of those web pages um, or... um, to remind you of some of the other excellent ideas that our panelists have shared as how we can better support Black-owned businesses. We will make this available on the SJ Quinney College of Law YouTube page, so please use it as a resource and share with others who may be interested um, in learning more. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Um, I hope you um, enjoy the rest of Black History Month and uh, commit with us to moving forward and moving the needle and supporting Black-owned businesses uh, in the future. Thank you you so much.